Welcome to Fast Break, the interview podcast with digital shakers and movers, presented by Arman Farsi. Hey, Steve. Welcome to another episode of Fast Break. How are you? I'm great, Arman. Thanks for having me. Yeah, cool. I mean, Steve, very cool that you take the time. I guess Fanatics that we want to talk about today is a company that in the U.S. many people are aware of. I guess in Europe also. Some In some countries and geographies, not that um big yet. So let's get into that. Uh, but before we do that, I guess, can you walk us a bit through your biography and how you then built Fanatics International? Sure. So um, so we we launched uh, GSI Commerce in 1999. Um, and at the time, GSI actually stood for Global Sports Interactive. So it's an interesting sort of we're back to the future because we're back to a sports business again. But 1999 was Global Sports Interactive, and our vision at the time was to uh, sign up all of the biggest American sports retailers in in the country so that they could compete effectively in e-commerce, essentially an outsourced e-commerce solution where we ran uh, their e-commerce business. And kind just of a white-label outsourcing service approach. That's right. It was a bit more like a franchisee model. We wrote them a royalty check uh, each month for the sales that they did, and then we ran the business like a franchisee would run their own business in a physical store. Um, but we started that business in sports. We grew it into many different categories over 11 years. It was doing uh, a few billion dollars in e-commerce sales and running uh, big retailers in America from Toys R Us to PetSmart to Bath and Body Works to Ralph Lauren to Adidas to many others. Um, and we sold that business to eBay in 2011 and bought back three businesses from eBay simultaneous to the sale of the core outsource business. Just to make sure you don't get bored, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Nice and one of those was Fanatics. And so in 2011, uh, Fanatics was a, really a $250 million e-commerce company in, in, inside of GSI running the American Sports League's e-commerce business. Uh, we separated it out. We defined a very particular vision for the business uh, that, uh, as you wish, we can get kind of get into t today, uh, but the business has kind of grown very successfully since then. And currently, I'm leading our kind of global expansion of Fanatics, uh, just as I led a global expansion of GSI Commerce uh, 10 years ago. The owner-founder of Fanatics, your, I guess, friend, colleague, whatever, you guys, two entrepreneurs, is Michael Rubin, and you and Michael, you somehow worked for many, many years. How did you initially get together at all? I mean, how did you get to know each other? Yeah, so Michael and I have worked together for uh, almost 20 years now, I think uh, 19 years coming up uh, later this year. And so uh, we've, we've spent a long time working together. But I've actually known of Michael since I was um, about 12 years old. Michael actually lived directly across the street uh, from my cousins. And uh, I would go over their house many times over the holidays, and I would hear about this crazy kid across the street who started this ski business in his basement. And then over the years, I heard how this crazy kid opened up ski shops. And the story of Michael Rubin is he was an entrepreneur. He was like born an entrepreneur, but at, at 
literally before 16 years old, he had many ski shops in the Philadelphia area running while he was in high school. So I knew of him from way back then. Um, in 1998, Michael uh, created an idea for an outsourced e-commerce company, uh, subsequently called GSI Commerce, which we sold to eBay in 2011. And I was with a sporting goods retailer, and he couldn't sell us because I had already solved all of our e-commerce problems. And uh, with Mike, that sporting goods retailer, that you with were that sporting for. goods retailer, that's right. And because uh, Michael couldn't sell us his solution, he he decided to persuade me to join him to persuade everybody else to when, get when on was board. That? That was in 1999 when I started. So was that a coincidence that you were neighbors and in the end ended up kind of working in the same industry? Total coincidence. Wow. Uh, you know, Michael had remained in the Philadelphia area at the time I was in the southern United States, uh, in Alabama of all places. And so uh, Michael and I kind of really connected for the first time in Alabama as part of his prior businesses and, and then the evolution that became his e-commerce business. Right. So um, getting to know Fanatics a bit better. I guess a, a few numbers to get a feeling for the size, the magnitude of the business. Can you help us a bit there? Yes. So um, we have grown uh, since kind of spinning out and focusing just on this business from a $250 million business to um, over a $2.5 billion business. So it's been kind of a... In eight years, more or Yeah, less. eight years, uh, about a 10x growth. And so we have really um, plotted a strategy to, to really drive and grow this licensed sports industry and to do it in a very unique way. And today our business has grown. E-commerce is our DNA and will always be our DNA. Um, but we've expanded our business um, in two meaningful ways. Uh, the first step, a bit smaller, we decided not just with with having a very fan-centered company in sports, running major sports businesses around the world, we also wanted to um, run the retail where fans take in the sport and really have an omni-channel solution for fan experience, whether it's at a stadium or online. So that was the first kind of evolution from a pure e-commerce company. And then the second evolution and more material was uh, we recognized that um, the suppliers in the e-commerce ecosystem um, were of two different profiles. There was one, uh, big performance brands like Nike and Adidas, and Nike and Adidas uh, are amazing companies, um, but Licensed sports is a very small percentage of the business, so they don't build their infrastructure. Roughly, what is it like five percent? It's less than five percent of their of their turnover would be licensed sports, um, and but they were the largest players in the industry globally, a very fragmented industry, and then everybody else was was small and didn't have the means to kind of invest in bespoke and unique global infrastructure for this industry, and so it's it was our vision that this industry really. Um, needed a disruptive company like Fanatics to create a vertical supply chain and really not just sell licensed products in e-commerce and physical retail to the end customer, but actually needed a company who built an agile supply chain and manufacturing operation for this industry that looks a lot more like Zara 
uh, and, and Inditex, H&M, et cetera, looks much more like fast fashion than it does like a traditional player in the sporting goods space like Nike and Adidas. And so today our business is e-commerce, physical retail, and then we're, we're actually um, probably becoming in the next year or so the largest manufacturer of fan merchandise globally. Yeah, and let's get to that maybe in a second because uh, I guess that's also public and we can talk about that deal that, that was signed. And for those who, who are not too familiar with the business model, in just very simple terms, maybe you can walk us a bit through you know, just the fundamentals of what we do and also with what clubs and leagues. Sure. So so firstly, um, you know, we wake up every single day thinking, how can we service the fan better and how can we service um, – the what we call the rights holders better. So those would be clubs and leagues, those who own the brand of sport. Um, and so uh, the first thing we think about is how do we grow the industry and really become a driver of the industry now that we're a leader. Um, and uh, we have a host of, of ideas and strategies and approaches that we believe will grow the closet share of fan merchandise globally. Um, but secondly, and, and equally, if not more important, we really help uh, rights holders, clubs, and, and leagues uh, around the world to make more money from their merchandise sales. And clubs and leagues have historically made a lot of money on ticketing and a lot of money on media deals, um, but they have not made a lot of money from the merchandising business. And just in terms of share, what we'd say is the typical, uh, you know, um, separation of the revenue streams. Is it like for media, 30, 40, 50% ticketing 30, and then merchandise is somewhere around what a 10, 20%. So I would say that if you looked at the profit mm -hmm. that clubs and leagues made from the pure merchandise transactional business that they operate, um, it, it varies by geography around the world, but I would say it's 5% or less of the, the, the quote, profits they bring in to pay player salaries and to mm. invest and grow uh, their club or provide returns to, to their owner. So media or ticketing are the primary other drivers of the 95%, but but merchandise has been an inconsequential money stream or profit stream for clubs and leagues historically. You just talked about, you know, that fast fashion approach. I guess that's quite interesting and very important, I guess, also to our business model. Can you delve a bit deeper into that with talking about hot markets, made-to-order infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, which I guess in the past wasn't really something fans had access to or were able, you know, to, to find in the market in terms of products? You know, it's our perspective that, um, well, it's maybe an obvious assessment that you can never predict what happens on uh, on the sporting field every single day and every single season. Um, and so in our industry, the historical model has been to uh, pick the merchandise and the quantity of merchandise you want to order as a retailer uh, nine months prior to a season starting. And it is... So if I was a retailer and I wanted to, to sell a kit or a jersey of a club, I would go to the uh, manufacturer, brand, be it Adidas, Nike, Puma, Umbro, etc. Nine months before I had to place that order. 
That's right. And you had to decide whether you were going to sell 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 of that club. And you would have no idea how that club would perform next season. Maybe an you know, indication how they've performed in the past, but you don't know what's coming up next. That's right. You, you, have, you have no idea what the season uh, will bear. And so, uh, and inevitably, you know, you're always, almost always wrong. Um, club always does better or worse than you may have predicted. And so, so retail, it's a really unhealthy business for retailers because, you know, from a historical perspective, because of this dynamic, they have to make bets that they uh, are highly volatile bets. They end up with way too much of some merchandise or some clubs um, and not enough of others. And the net result is the industry is really held back by this. Retailers choose not to buy the product aggressively because it's just been one they've been burned on so many times. Um, for all of those reasons, this you know the most important thing this industry needs is a agile, fast fashion supply chain that can actually not require uh, retailers like ourselves, as the largest retailer of licensed sports in the world, or um, or physical retailers or other online retailers. What we need to do is to develop uh, and and to provide product to retailers in this industry that allows them to buy into you know a product this week that's get delivered next week or three weeks from now and not nine months from now and really this agility in the supply chain is is fundamental to how um, this can become a growth industry instead of an industry that's been relatively flat over the past 10 years and what are the most important ingredients to that fast fashion approach in terms of infrastructure so um, we keep investing in um, a level of infrastructure to create extreme agility. And we're in the early stages of that journey. Um, we just started manufacturing the first product ever, uh, you know, for us uh, five years ago. Um, and, you know, we will manufacture over a billion dollars worth of merchandise this year. So we've kind of grown our scale quickly. Where agility for us exists today in the extreme is in our e-commerce business. And um, about a half a billion dollars of our e-commerce business is manufactured by us today. And half of that uses what's called a, a made-to-order uh, infrastructure um, that we have put in place to, to service that. And what that made-to-order infrastructure does is we actually – finish the goods on that in that made to order infrastructure after the customer places the order. So we have a, a set of materials and silhouettes and and blank merchandise in some way shape or form sitting in our warehouses in all colors for probably all clubs partners that we work with. That's right. And and we have we we actually create uh, over 300,000 designs that would go on that merchandise each year um, in various ways. And so when we create a new design of a product that works in that agile infrastructure, we create the design of a product, we test a sample, and then we take that live without ever having that finished merchandise in our warehouse. When the customer places the order for that new design – um, that is after 
the purchase, that is the moment for which we then finish the manufacturing of that product and then ship it out to the customer the same day. So it's actually a post-purchase manufacturing process. Um, we are now starting to scale that up. So we call that, that's made to order, our MTO infrastructure. We are now taking that same concept and we are developing um, MTI infrastructure, made to inventory infrastructure, that can start to allow us to service our wholesale customers in the retail marketplace with the ability to place a you know, a replenishment order of merchandise for their store sales today on what sells well and to have us finish those goods in real time and then deliver it to them, you know, same day or in a few days. So we're trying to take that concept of MTO infrastructure in e-commerce and then start to apply it in the wholesale sector so that we can create a healthier business model for retailers. So I guess the, the, the key ingredient to that is a, the infrastructure that you just described, and B, of course, or actually before that, A, um, in the first place, the license that we have the right for that specific club partner league uh, to pu produce that, that um, product. Just to make an example, so uh, hot markets can be something like, I don't know, Joel Embiid, I guess we have some sort of uh, affiliation with the Philadelphia 76ers as Michael Rubin, our founder, is co-owner of that club. Let's say Embiid had scored 20 through 23 three-pointers, right? That would be a hot market, an instant moment where fans would love to have some memory of, be it a t-shirt, etc. So we would be able, with our designers, um, prepare that, put it on site, and the moment the fan purchases it on site, we would then produce it the next moment and ship it out, I guess, the next or the other day. Is that more or less how it works? That, that, that concept is exactly how it works. When a special moment happens on the court, uh, and whether whether it's Joel Embiid having an epic performance that uh, hopefully we'll be producing a shirt at some point in the coming years that talks about the championship that we won and some epic moment that <laughs> delivers that. Uh, but when those moments happen, that is um, that is when this agile supply chain, you know, executes best. Uh, I'll give you uh, a real life e example at being from Philadelphia. I'm not only a 76ers fan, but a Philadelphia Eagles fan. And, and that's uh, American football. That is American football. Yes. For I apologize. Yes. In, in Central Europe. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm a big European football fan as well, but yes, American football. And, um, and the Eagles won their first Super Bowl ever uh, two years ago. And they, there was a very famous play uh, that they called at the end of the game to win it. In, and th they had called the play uh, in practice, the Philly special. And the uh, TV overheard the coach and the quarterback having the conversation prior to the play. And the quarterback said, yeah, I think we should do the Philly special. And, and Doug Peterson, that was Nick Foles, Doug Peterson said, okay, you want to do Philly special? Okay, coach. let's do it. That's the coach. And uh, they called the play. It was it was it ended up instead of the quarterback throwing the ball, you know, the runner threw it to the quarterback, and um, it was perfect. I mean, it was magic. As a Philadelphia Eagles fan, um, you know, you could never predict that moment, and it will. You know, fifty years from now, we'll be talking about the Philly special. Well, our designers before that game ended designed a number of Philly special shirts uh, in the event that the Eagles won to take that live as part of 
uh, the winning merchandise. We got it approved from the NFL prior to the game ending. And then the second that the game ended on the homepage of the Philadelphia Eagles website and the NFL website was, you know, as part of this collection, the Philly special shirt. And it was one of the best-selling shirts because it was just one of these emotional and magic moments um, you know, that we'll always remember, maybe uh, like Liverpool will remember uh, always having beaten Barcelona, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 4-3 to get into the Champions League final coming up just on June 1st. So that's just an example of how that um, agile supply chain can work. And sometimes those moments on the field do small sales, and sometimes they just they blow out in a way that you can never expect and that's that's how do the I have nature to, of our business how do i have to picture that in terms of operations so there's teams sitting in front of the tv at their desks in the office designers etc watching these games waiting for something to happen and then you know these things still have to somehow happen manually right creating that design somebody has to have that trigger take the decision on the nfl or the partner side there must be someone approving it that instant moment right that's still Sort of, you know, some some uh, hurdles there to get there. What's the operational setup behind it? So for any um, for any uh, big game where uh, you know that um, you know there's going to be an exciting moment, somebody will have won a championship or things like that. It doesn't matter what time the game is on. We have people who are watching the game and trying to creatively figure out what are the moments that they can get behind to celebrate that moment in sport and to tap into that fan passion. And so we have designers um, and business leaders, you know, watching that game because we are all fans ourselves, right? I mean, we're by fans for fans. Um, and so uh, we have teams watching that. Um, they get passionate about a particular moment. Uh, they create that design just, you know, Artists are creating that design. Um, leagues or clubs are on hold and in the ready to receive these designs and to approve them real time. And then we, uh, you know, have e-commerce leaders who are able to push them live and get them on our homepage, push them out in emails and things like that. You know, all in this example, the moment the game ends. I think that's a very special and important ingredient as well. I think we talked about, you know, the creative, the, the design part, the infrastructure, etc. But I guess one of the differentiator that the way I see it is the tech and the data infrastructure that you guys actually I just joined, so you guys have built over the past years. Can you help us a bit more about that really personalizing the fan experience to each an individual that, you know, is a bit different than in fashion where you switch brands here and there, but I guess as a fan, you have your team. Sure. Yeah, we have, um, we have, uh, you know, relationships with over 50 million fans globally, um, as part of our e-commerce business. And, and we have a, a tremendous amount of data that we collect about fans, of course, what they buy, what they click on, what their interests are, where they live, et cetera. And, and we use that to personalize, you know, their experience in, um, in every way we can, and that grows tremendously. Data, uh, we, we are a Silicon Valley headquartered company. San Mateo. San Mateo is, yeah, where the headquarters are. So um, we, we move the company's headquarters to Silicon Valley and um, just about six or seven years ago to make sure that um, we accelerated 
the center of this company is kind of an e-commerce and technology-centered company, even though much of what we're doing is, um, you know, the industry that's been around a long time of creating merchandise or doing retail. But, you know, technology and data is crucial. And that Silicon Valley team is, is um, you know, some of the best I've ever seen. And I've been in the business a long time on how to collect data and leverage data to grow a business for ourselves and leagues and clubs and um, and also to um, to learn more and more about a fan so that we can service them best. Our best partners will we integrate with our partners data and so we collect that data not just for our own use but for our uh, you know for partners like um, Manchester City as a partner here in Europe or Real Madrid or in the US the American sports leagues and what these rights holders want to do, that we collect this tremendous data, and what they want to do is we want to build relationships to sell more merchandise. Clubs and leagues want to build these relationships to create a stronger bond with their fan, maybe sell them tickets. Uh, in some cases, for leagues and clubs, maybe sell them streaming subscriptions to game platforms like the NBA Pass or the NFL Game Pass where people can watch games and, uh, and on an interrupt. online platform. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, um, Stephen, we have had these discussions internally as well. That's not so easy as it sounds like as you are just explaining. I mean, um, with all the, you know, compliance topics, the opt-ins we need, etc. So I guess that's also an accomplishment to get there where we are at the moment with all the circumstances that we need to comply, of course, with. Um, and there's, you know, uh, another, I think, question that people usually have is that we understood for Adidas, Nike, these big sports manufacturers, it seems to be not the focus of their business model or not the biggest chunk of their revenue stream. How's the, let's say, cooperation with them because someone from outside the industry could think hey guys you must be big competitors and kind of enemies etc mm. which i guess it's quite the opposite we're really partners together and and this nfl uh, deal i think that you mentioned or didn't mention but that you had in mind earlier when you said this one billion dollar of merchandise we're going to produce um let's understand that a bit better sure so um Our relationships with performance brands and certainly Adidas and, and Nike being the two biggest performance brands are, are two of our most important partners and relationships in the world. Um, and, and we complement their strengths. We're, we're not competing with their strengths. That's not to say that in some cases we don't have some overlapping interests and certainly what Fanatics is doing is new to our industry. But we are not we, – we are – We are partners and cooperators with um, with Nike and Adidas, and we we look to help them. You know, they're in this business for two reasons. Number one, they are the brand of athletes. They make incredible performance product that help athletes perform at the top of their game. That's what they wake up and think about every single day, and they're amazing about. Um, so, so they're in sport. Number one to make sure that that fuels the core DNA of who, who they are, which is the brand and product of the athlete. And, and the second thing they do is, you know, having athletes wear that product on the field, wear their brand on the field is a, is a, um, is a really important marketing moment for them. That's the authenticity that shows that, um, you know, Adidas can help Lionel Messi perform better, they can help me perform better on the pitch, although I might need a little more technology than he does. Um, and so so in any case, that's their primary reason they're in this business. Um, 
And uh, we're in the business to service the fan and to grow the merchandise sales. And so we, we come at the reasons that we care about this business from just fundamentally different starting spots, and they can complement each other. Uh, in the case of the NFL-Nike uh, relationship that you referenced, um, that was uh, a disruptive business model that we introduced to the industry and, and it goes live next year. And starting in summer of 2020, uh, uh, Nike will continue to uh, manufacture all the merchandise that is on the athletes. Uh, so all the on-field merchandise, they will uniform, equip uh, all of the athletes. Um, but then the commercialization of all of that Nike fan merchandise, including the authentic and replica merchandise uh, that is sold at retail of uh, the shirts or the uniform, will be done um, and executed by Fanatics. So um, Fanatics will be selling um, all of the Nike NFL merchandise to every retail channel globally. Um, and uh, Nike you know, decided along with the NFL that Fanatics and its focus could do, execute that and grow that business better than Nike could just on their own. And so it's, it's, it is a perfect example of how, uh, in this case, Nike and Fanatics are not actually competitive, but are actually helping each other to, um, you know, both do what we're best at. Understood, understood. Very interesting. We, we talked um, quite a bit about the distribution channels. You said e-commerce, it's you know retail, be it in stadiums, sometimes even on high street with some um, flagship stores, etc. And then I guess it was last year, the announcement, or was it this year, of that um, major cooperation with Walmart. And that's, I guess, tapping into just very new fields in terms of distribution strategy. Um, what's happening there? Yeah, so um, if you go back to Fanatics wakes up every single day and just says, how can we grow this industry and service fans better? So that's one important nugget to understand this strategy. The second important nugget that we, we talked about earlier was how retailers um, have really learned by experience to be defensive in how they invest in this category. And the net result of those two dynamics means that um, – in most retail channels where fans are accustomed to shopping for their merchandise, sports merchandise or otherwise, they do not have a very big selection of licensed sports products. Uh, the retailers just haven't bought into it. And and then when you, um, when you think about all the fans that are growing outside of home markets, so I mean, you know, most sporting clubs used to be uh, a very and exclusively local phenomenon. That was where you could watch. I mean, as an American, I was I was a soccer player in America, goalkeeper, and um, it was my number one sport. And my only way to watch European football as an American kid, whatever thirty years ago, was um, I, we would occasionally get on a like video reel. 
um, a game from like two or three years ago from some one European football match that we could kind of look at in a classroom in some way, shape, or form. I could never watch European football. And today, in today's world, obviously, it's all accessible and it's online and all of these games are being distributed. Fans are getting created everywhere around the world. And, you know, if if you're in, we're in the UK here today, in the UK here today, if you go to you know, JD Sports or Sports Direct or some of the leading retailers, um, they don't carry it. Like all the fan merchandise that you would expect, even though they're the largest sports merchandise players in this category. Now, when you go outside of the UK and let's go to China or to Korea or to Japan or to America, the access of Premier League merchandise is really narrow and really small. So anyway, when you when you think about these various dynamics in our industry, um, we have decided to not ju- – we, we carry about uh, over 1 million SKUs, over 1 million individual products. I think the last I saw was about 1.3 or 1.4 million individual fan – pieces of fan merchandise globally in our infrastructure. And instead of now using – all of that inventory of the largest selection of fan merchandise in the world just for our e-commerce businesses. We have now started to walk down a path of a strategy to really enable retailers and marketplaces um, and to collaborate with them to take that largest assortment of fan merchandise and to offer it on their platform. So in in the example of Walmart, um, Walmart is... uh, they're a huge seller of licensed sports merchandise in America, although they never sell the top-tier Adidas and Nike product because that's not product they have access to in their store. Because I guess it's a bit uh, lower-priced segment for the Walmart uh, that's right. segment they, they, they uh, Yeah, in. that's exactly right. And so... So in any case, they're a huge seller of licensed sports merchandise, and, and what uh, our relationship with... Uh, Walmart did is Fanatics actually took over uh, all of the fan merchandise on Walmart.com and Jet.com, you know, the Walmart e-commerce businesses in America. Walmart stopped buying the merchandise themselves. Fanatics exclusively powers it. In the case of Walmart, it's a Fanatics shop and shop. Um, and so it's really, we opened up a fanatic store on Walmart and now the Walmart customer has access to that same largest selection of fan merchandise that a customer at fanatics.com does. Um, and you know, Walmart wins because they have the merchandise that customers want. Um, fanatics wins. We can grow our business and grow our brand on Walmart and the leagues and rights holders, the clubs win because now customers have more access to that merchandise. It's going to grow the industry and grow the closet share and allow everybody to make more money. Um, so we've done those deals in America. We also announced Kohl's, which is a very large department store in America, just last week. But we've also um, announced deals or, or shared deals that we've done with some marketplaces around the world, including uh, the leading marketplace in Korea, Coupang, um, and uh, a leading marketplace in Japan, Rakuten. And so this will be, um, we're working with retailers and marketplaces around the world to see if we can uh, develop this type of win-win partnership for the retailer, for fanatics, and for the industry. 
So understood, working with Walmart and other platforms, you haven't mentioned Amazon in this context. What's the perspective on that? You know, Amazon is is an amazing company that keeps accomplishing incredible things, and and uh, certainly in in the U.S. and in Europe. And then there's companies like Alibaba or marketplace leaders in various countries like Coupang or Rakuten or B2W in Brazil, Mercado Libre. I mean, there's incredible leaders in in e-commerce, and um, you know, as it relates to Amazon in particular, and I think if you look at e-commerce in general. Um, you know, the only way you're going to build a successful business is to figure out how you're going to differentiate yourself in an Amazon world. Uh, because if you don't figure out how you're going to differentiate yourself in an Amazon world, uh, you won't be around or your company and business model won't be around very long. We hope that we'll find ways to not be competitors and to be cooperators with with lots of people around the world who we may compete with someday. And you know, with our DNA and our responsibility now as global leaders in this industry, we have a responsibility to develop this industry in the right ways and to figure out how to work with anybody in the industry over time. Um, and Amazon, you know, would be no different than anybody else in that regard. So I guess we just want to, you know, follow what happens in the next months and years and see if there's any developments around that. I, I I think that that's right. I'm sure Fanatics has changed tremendously as a company over the last five or eight years, um, and and we will continue to uh, change at a very fast pace. And so uh, I would not just watch out for what we do with internet leaders like Amazon or Alibaba or JD or other marketplace leaders around the world, but just look at what we do across the board. Very interesting. So I guess um, one event that brought fanatics up also on the news, in the media, in the, let's say, a perception of a wider uh, audience was the investment by SoftBank. SoftBank with their, I think it's called the Vision Fund, I guess the largest tech fund in the world with 100 billion under management. They invested reportedly a billion into fanatics. I guess that was 2017, 16, about that time. What changed with that? What yeah. happened with that money? <laughs> it's not on my salary. Um, so yeah, SoftBank invested a uh, billion dollars in Fanatics and and the Vision Fund. Uh, this is the largest. I think it's the largest uh, private equity fund globally, and they're very focused on making bets on disruptive companies that are reinventing industries and. Um, they bet on us because they believed in our vision to reinvent and grow the fan merchandise industry. Um, we've we've accomplished, you know, when they made their investment, um, while all of uh, the elements of our strategy were not public, they they now are. But SoftBank saw the disruption that that we were able to uh, achieve in the U.S. market, and they saw. Uh, the deals that were going to happen that included us manufacturing, uh, let's say, Nike merchandise for Nike and the NFL, which which we talked about earlier. So they saw all the disruption and all the agility in the supply chain that that um, has been benefiting the industry in America, and they invested this money to um, help us to expand into that vision. On a global basis, and the two biggest areas that um, that we're spending 
you know, SoftBank's investments is number one, the agi- the creating that agility in the supply chain everywhere in the world and progressing on that vision, moving not just from made to order, but made to inventory, not, not just doing that agility for our own e-commerce business and now for other people's e-commerce business, but also for let's say whole set, you know, the retail sector through made to inventory. So the agile supply chain and the development of that vertical capability is one. So it's machines, warehouses, carrier networks, people, people. data, technology systems that integrate yes. everything, et cetera. Um, and, and then all of that has to be global because you you have to finish the product, you know, done best in each local market or each local you know continent. You have to finish that product locally. Um, that's the agility you require. Somebody orders it, you want to finish it locally today and ship it to them later today. Um, not not do it in China and have it take two or three weeks to get to them. So anyway, supply chain agility is one. And the second is is global infrastructure and, and capability in, um, in two facets. Number one, e-commerce um, and making sure that our e-commerce investment systems, technology, warehouses, customer service operations are increasingly a full global platform for us and for our sports clubs and and leagues that we work with. And number two, we're building um, a wholesale sales team. Essentially, we want to be able to sell to retailers, license sports merchandise in all geographies around the world. So we're building a sales team to sell merchandise to retailers, e-commerce systems to properly enable this business in each kind of local market around the world, and then this agile supply chain. And and that's where the investment dollars are going. Interesting. So... um... Looking a bit ahead, I guess uh, Michael Rubin in a few public interviews also announced that strategy or vision or goal to hit whatever the $10 billion sooner or the, than later. Um, how is that going to happen? I mean, how big is the market overall? What share can we capture, et cetera, et cetera? So the market globally today is a, is a $25 billion market is our estimate of the size of the market globally. Um, we believe we can grow the market. To um, to be a, a market that you know is a thirty to thirty five billion dollar market if you execute against you know a lot of the gaps that the that ha- exist in the industry today. So but we demand be- that's not being served because the product's just not out there. That's right. You know, the, it, we we there is so many more fans than have access to product today, uh, especially. Um, you in America we would historically call them displaced fans, but whatever a uh, um, a a a Liverpool fan in you know in Japan does not have access uh, convenient access to a lot of Liverpool merchandise, as an example. And so this growing kind of global fan base of sports um, largely has product inaccessible. So we believe that the industry can grow to thirty to thirty five billion dollars um, and we believe that we can um, really help to to drive that growth in e-commerce and and via making the retail environment healthier and so you know we've grown 10 times in the last eight years or so from 250 million to two and a half billion um, 
we just have to grow four times in the next eight years to get to 10. So uh, so the law of large numbers catches up to our growth rate, I guess, to some degree. <laughs> okay. um, but we, we, we genuinely uh, – we're not, we're not at hitting headroom yet. We're not – we're not running against our our limits of our ability to continue to grow. I think we we see enormous opportunity for growth for us in the industry, and I think uh, I think ten billion dollars will be a number that we hit at some point. In the future. What are the two or three main challenges that keep you awake, make you wake up in the morning, um, thinking about that we need to crack in order to get there? What are the hurdles? Well, I mean, it, it's what we're doing is is new for our industry. Um, in some cases, new in e-commerce or new in general. Um, yeah, this is hard. Executing this is hard, um, and we are going to proceed down our growth path via a combination of growing organically, uh, acquiring. Uh, companies in various geographies to fulfill our vision and then integrating them. Um, and it's just, we want to be progressing against our journey and all the potential that we see as rapidly as possible. I think that the hardest thing to do is to make sure that you're prioritizing um, the most important right investments and capabilities, let's say, to progress on this year because you just can't You can't do everything at once. So I think what keeps me up is the we're we're moving very quickly, and how do we just try to make sure that we're focused on the right capabilities first, um, and that we grow into our vision um, in the right way for us and our our rights holders, clubs, and leagues, et cetera. One uh, let's say dynamics that I personally view in the market is that you know we work very closely with our partners who are leagues, federations, or clubs. And at the same time, over the past, I would think, two, three years with the social media uh, opportunities that there are, these individual players become stars themselves who have fans, especially outside of their home countries where these fans would walk away from clubs if the player leaves the club. I guess Cristiano Ronaldo, the best example, where these players become more or less personal brands themselves. So how does that affect our business model? Not really having to be quite transparent here, the license or the rights for that individual player, right? Yeah. So I, I think first you're definitely correct. There's a you know the fans have become um, increasingly connected to players as much as they're connected to clubs, and that the players' brand and the social media and direct connections they're able to make has only um, has only fueled that. Um, you know, for us, it's really a, a marketing strategy more than anything. Players change clubs, uh, you know, from time to time. Um, what we need to do is know a lot about a fan. We need to know that they're a uh, Cristiano Ronaldo fan. And when, you know, uh, a player moves to Juventus, we need to make sure that to let that fan know we know who they are and we've got their Cristiano Ronaldo jersey and some new colors and some new stripes with uh, Juventus after he moves from Real. So really, it, it becomes an important part of the data infrastructure and how we keep it and how we use it um, over time. 
Well, I guess um, we could talk for hours, uh, but we also like to get to better know Steve himself. And, and <laughs> I think we, we understood what a very memorable moment in sports was for yourself, the Philly special that I didn't Philly know about. Special. Yeah. Uh, we understood how you guys, Michael and yourself, um, spent the or got to know each other, uh, worked the past years. A few more, let's say, quick Q&As here and just very short answers um, to each of these question um Let's go through a list and see um, how you, you take overall, right? So um, to begin with, what's your favorite question that you would ask in recruiting interviews? You know, really, I, I, don't, I, I don't have any of these. Uh, I don't do the uh, case questions or the... Uh, What type of fruit are you, or something like that? I, I, <laughs> that um, one I, I didn't I'm even a, know. I'm, I'm a bit more direct um, than that. I, I, I'm most interested in uh, we we believe in being reflect. I believe that great leaders are um, smart, reflective, humble, and can really assess um, themselves and and you know what they learned and could have done better in the course of their past career, past efforts, past businesses that they've grown and built. And so I would say, you know, one of the more important things for me is to understand how somebody assesses, you know, their own mistakes over time, how they've learned from those mistakes and how they can demonstrate um, that in, you know, meaningful ways in a dialogue. In a very few sentences, asking this question to yourself, what would that be? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, the most important thing is um, you, you always, in any business, you always have to start with the people and the leaders. And I think uh, great people and great leaders deliver great business outcomes and you know, great strategy without the right people on the bus is, is never going to deliver you an outcome that works. You always have to put that first. And, um, and you know, I would say I'm... I can point to a lot of times over my career where I've had to step back and remind myself that that's the first place I need to start every single day. Understood. Um, how do you manage your to-dos? As you said, you have to prioritize every day, you know, uh, doing the right things. And I guess you have hundreds of things ending up on your phone, uh, desk, etc. How do you prioritize? With what tool? What, what um, technique do you use? I'm, I'm not sure that... Um, This answer will uh, put me in good light, but um, uh, I really manage my priorities by a single post-it note. There's no technologically sophisticated anything. What I what I have physical post-it, uh, a physical small yellow, yellow post-it note uh, that sits on my desk. Uh, occasionally, once a week or once a month, I might slightly update that single post-it note. Um, But you're, 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 you always have hundreds or thousands of things to do. What you need to make sure is that um, you remind yourself every day and every hour what are the small number of things that are most important. And that post-it note and the small size of that post-it note assures that that list is not 100 and that it actually doesn't change because if you've got the right list uh, – Yeah, sure, I knock things off of the list from time to time. But if you, you have the right list of fundamental strategic things that are going to drive the business, um, they don't, you know, they certainly don't change daily. And being reminded every single day that these are the eight things that I need to make happen this year or this quarter, this half year, 
that's how I manage well, my What's the my number partners. one on it currently? Uh, I can't disclose ah, that. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe off record. Um, uh, how many phone numbers do you have? How many phone numbers do I yeah, have? Yeah, I mean, you're in different geographies. Maybe sometimes people separate between private and professional, etc. I do, I do. Three. Oh, you do? I wow. do. I do have three. Is that between private, professional, and then also uh, geographies? Yes, correct. Got it. Um, what's your favorite app? My favorite app is, um, is it's probably um, my notes app, my Apple notes app. I'm, I'm an Apple ecosystem guy um, and I use in every single meeting that I have I make notes in my notes app uh, Apple does a wonderful job of syncing that between my laptop every one of my three phone numbers and my devices that I have with that my iPad etc so no matter what device I have on me in an instant I can search um, from any meeting or any notes that I had regarding anything and, and the instant access to that type of info. I mean, it's a simple app, so yeah. I'm not giving you a highly elegant answer, but it's like it's incredibly functional if for it me. It works. Uh, yeah. That's the most important. What's the communication channel most likely one will uh, reach you? Is it email, phone, chat, knocking um, on your door? You know, there is... Um, uh, there is one particular messaging app that goes across all of my phone numbers, professional and personal. Uh, I'm not going to share which one that is uh, <laughs> on our podcast here because uh, some of my phone numbers are trying to design to keep me disconnected from work and to make sure that I can separate. But I do, I do have a secret, uh, a secret messaging app that uh, I can always be accessed on, and. Um, and I have given all of the geographies we operate. I have many messaging apps on my phone, from Line to WeChat to, of course, WhatsApp and iMessage and 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 others. And and um, one of those one is of the those, one of those is the secret door to me wherever I am. A talent or hobby of yours that many don't know about. We understood you were a goalkeeper. Anything yeah, apart from I that? Yeah, I was a I was a goalkeeper, and I made made the mistake of trying to to play football soccer again last thursday um my knee is is regretting that um so uh, i don't know it's so secret but i but i used to play guitar in high school i was in a band uh, the backstreet gamblers was the band before the uh, backstreet boys or, or, <laughs> before yes before the backstreet boys not quite as good looking or, or, or as well dancing as the backstreet boys uh but uh but i play a little bit of guitar um i'm not particularly Good. I'm not sure I was particularly good in high school. I'm certainly worse now. But uh, electric but, or classic? Uh, yeah, acoustic guitar. Acoustic, yeah, or right, classic, yeah. Uh, classic guitar. I mean, I played electric as well. But uh, I have in in my house. I have a acoustic guitar hanging on the wall of my house, so that uh, whenever me or a guest or anybody want to get inspired and play a little music, they can grab the guitar off the wall and just uh, start playing for themselves or for their family. And so that's probably my secret hobby. One single source for sports news? You know, being um, American, I, you know, Bleacher Report is my, um, you know, I think, I don't think that app is here in Europe, but uh, but Bleacher Report is my primary sports app. I, I also have... Uh, started to adopt uh, all football as well, which which get, lets me go a little bit deeper in, in in the football world. How much cash do you carry right now with you? Uh, I I carry no cash. 
That's interesting. Uh, very, you know, un-German, which I guess <laughs> in Germany is always usually a bit di different. Uh, last question. Do you have a mentor? And if so, who would that be? I have a, a variety of of mentors over my career. I know some people, you know, um, might have kind of one that stands out more than any uh, to them. And for me, I don't have just one. I have um, a variety of mentors that I truly tried to lean on from from time to time. I certainly rely on you know, my family as it relates to some important decisions personally. So my dad and my mom would certainly play important roles in that. Um, you know, M Michael is an amazing entrepreneur and business person. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure I've learned the most in my career, um, you know, from working with Michael over the last 19 or 20 years. So that's, um, that's certainly somebody I would put up there as well. But I would, I, I would say broadly, I, I learn from a lot of people and I try to keep that network and tap into it from time to time to um, get some real authentic unvarnished advice yeah, yeah. Um, you know to tackle either personal or professional challenges that I might be facing from time to time. Hey Steve that was very very interesting thank you very very much for taking this time by the way we met at 7 a.m in the morning so a quite early uh, recording here meaning for you also to wake up quite early thank you very very much. Thanks, Armand. Great time.